Hello, health scientists, and thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Kieran Fairman. Kieran is an assistant professor in exercise science at the University of South Carolina, and his research focuses on the impact of exercise, nutritional supplementation, and behavioral interventions on the health and wellness of people with cancer. He got his PhD in kinesiology from Ohio State University, and he recently finished a postdoctoral research fellowship in exercise oncology at Edith Cowan University. He's also published over 50 peer-reviewed abstracts, manuscripts, book chapters in the areas of exercise science and sports nutrition. I'm very biased about the benefits of exercise because it's what I study in my own research, and I really really enjoyed this chance to speak with Kieran about the similar research he does just in a different population, in people with cancer. What can happen to someone's body when they go through cancer and, and its treatments? Can exercise help? And if it can, what changes about the exercise recommendations for people with cancer? We really go into this in detail and we go into the importance of tailoring someone's exercise recommendations to their own individual needs and we talk about ways to help people keep exercising regularly to maintain the benefits. If anything, you're really going to pick up on Kieran's passion for exercise and how it can help people. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I know I loved this conversation with Kieran. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for even more great podcasts. And if you can, please share and spread the news of the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think might be interested in this podcast, either a coach or maybe even someone going through cancer treatment right now, please let them know about it and maybe it can be of some help to them. So on to this conversation with Kieran. Let's talk science. Kieran, how are you doing? Well, Richie, what's the crack? All good, man. Um, thank you very, very much for joining us tonight. No bother at all. No bother. Um, I've uh, just been talking you up uh, a little bit, um, but before I, I do any more talking up of you, it's always good to get it uh, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So um, would you be able to give us a little bit of an introduction just as to, to, to who you are and, and what you do, please? Yeah. Um, don't talk me up too much. Your, your listeners will be severely disappointed. <laughs> um, yeah, my name's Kieran. I am an assistant professor of exercise science at the University of South Carolina. Um, my journey to get to this point has kind of been long and varied, ranging from working with people in elite sport and the world's strongest men to all the way to the other end of the spectrum in kind of terminal cancer and working with people at the end of their life. And my main research interest and area is kind of around resistance training, supplementation and uh, body composition in individuals with cancer. So that's kind of my, my 30 second spiel of who I am, what I'm up to. A little, a little bit too modest, but uh, I find most people are when they're talking about themselves on this. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. so, so now this is where I get to actually grill you a little bit. Um, so just just tell us a little bit about like your your background and how did you end up getting into to science? And so maybe if you can tell us a little bit about um, your your career and in, in academics. Yeah, um, I couldn't have started further away from being a scientist as you can get. I actually, um, I failed my leaving cert coming out of uh, secondary school. 
Um, and I was fortunate that I was I was an average footballer, and there was actually a course in Dublin called uh, Collage de Ida, which is aimed at kind of getting lads away on on scholarship to play football. So enrolled in that the year after I finished my leaving cert, went over. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship. Went over to the states and started playing football. And um, going from Dublin City to rural Kentucky, where I, I did my scholarship, was uh, a huge culture shock. And on top of that, the the academic system in the states works that you don't. It's not vocational. So in your four years of college, you actually study all sorts of um, uh, subjects like. I was studying American history and French and all this type of stuff. And the combination of, I, w- I couldn't play football initially my first year because my grades in secondary school were so bad. Moved to the middle of Kentucky, in the middle of nowhere, um, and trying to manage all the, the culture shock in addition to all these subjects. I was all over the place trying to kind of get me bearings. And it took a couple of years to settle down. And um, it kind of just happened, a, a lot of things happened in my life at the time. It was kind of a, a combination of my own ma got um, breast cancer and she started to go through treatment and started to listen to all the things that she was experiencing from chemo and radiation and all that stuff. I was a sports management major at the time, but there was actually a professor who came in and started this new major at the college called health science. And it was all around exercise physiology and things like that. And he used to come out to my soccer games and, and kind of talk to me about the physiology of why I was warming up and what was happening during the game and stuff like that. And I was like, geez, I can't believe you get to study this for a career kind of thing. And he found out about my ma and actually brought me out to American College of Sports Medicine, which is the biggest conference in, in the world for what we do, um, brought me out there. And it was like 10, 15,000 people all researching different parts of exercise physiology and psychology. And I was like, this is unbelievable. And he was like, do you know what? Like he, you might have a career in this if you want. So he was the one who helped me kind of pursue um, a master's and push me into to research because at the time I was doing it, I just wanted to do strength and conditioning. I wanted to be a, an S&C coach. And he he recommended I do a research path during my master's. And I was going bananas at him um, when he kind of recommended it. And like I feel so grateful that he actually pushed me that direction because I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the, the scientific process of designing studies, discovery, figuring out questions and answers and all that type of stuff. And that brought me up to, um, I did my PhD in Ohio State and had some incredible experiences. I got to work in the MLS as a sports scientist um, for a year and then working with, again, the world's strongest men and doing kind of exercise physiology related stuff. At the same time, I was building my career in the exercise and cancer stuff. So all the principles of training that we know to be important for elite athletes exist in clinical populations and probably even more so in people with cancer who are receiving different types of treatment. So I got lucky in that I kind of used my background in sports nutrition and exercise physiology, applied it to clinical population and found this amazing career that that kind of landed me where I'm at now. Living the dream, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Hit the jackpot. I I think it's it's always cool when you... um you know, when, when somebody's path is, is not exactly completely straight, like, you know, going out of, uh, out of college or out of, out of, even out of secondary school, knowing exactly what you're going to do or where you're going to go and then just finding that one thing that you want to do um, and then just pursuing it. So uh, fair play to you for, for getting it. Um, if, if we talk about uh, your, let's say, your, your career in exercise oncolo- oncology, could we talk a little bit about what, 
Actually, yeah, let, let's go, go to basics. What is exercise oncology? It is the investigation of, and I'd, I'd even go more broad than exercise, the investigation of exercise, nutritional supplementation, and psychological interventions in individuals with cancer who are either right before, during, or after their cancer treatment. So the whole premise of it is centered around, we understand that different types of cancer treatment, whether it's surgery or chemotherapy or radiation or even hormonal therapy, can have all these different physical and mental effects on people with cancer. And a lot of those side effects, you're looking at reductions in muscle mass, you're looking at gain of fat mass, losing bone, bone health, reductions of physical function, all these things that happen with, with, with cancer treatment, they're, they mirror the positive effects of exercise. So you don't have to be a scientist to go, hang on a minute, if you're losing muscle and you're losing fitness because of these treatments, it would make sense to build people up as much as possible to make them more resilient to buffer these side effects. And the best analogy I can give to a lot of the people who are, are tuning to your, your kind of content is I make the analogy to a football or, or a season of, of training for any sort of team sport. And we, we kind of phase it in, in those kind of phases in, in pre-season. The fitter you are going into pre-season, the less injuries you're going to have. The fitter you are in season, the better you're going to be able to tolerate that load and the stress of that season. The exact same thing goes for exercise and cancer. The fitter you are at diagnosis, generally the more you're going to be able to tolerate a lot of what's to come in terms of the treatment decrements. The fitter you, you get yourself in that prehab stage, with the goal is to build you up as, as much as possible, build your physiological reserves to buffer all of the side effects we know that are going to come from radiation, chemo, surgery, all that stuff. And then any sport during season, the goal is to maintain performance, maintain where you're at. You know yourself, if you, if you train for a sport and you try to improve strength or you try to improve fitness, some of it will come because you're playing your sport and you're training so often. But more often than not, if we can keep you as fit as you were going into the season and maybe try and peak you towards the end, you're in a really good spot. So the same thing we try to do with cancer treatment, it would, your, your body's going through a lot, receiving chemotherapy, getting radiation, maybe having surgery. It's a lot on the body to, to take and it's a very stressful kind of event. So it doesn't make sense to compound that with a rake of extra stress from exercise. So what we try to do is be really strategic in how we target the exercise to whatever physical side effect we're going to experience. Make that kind of an impairment-driven process where we know you're going to lose muscle mass, so we'll throw in some resistance training. We know the cardiovascular system is going to be hit, so let's balance that with some aerobic exercise. And manage the rest and recovery of those sessions in line with how they respond to chemotherapy. So it's this ebb and flow of managing readiness to train, managing recovery, to maintain physical function and quality of life throughout treatment, to where when you get to the end of treatment, really that's the, the post-season where you get to have a bit of fun, you can try and improve fitness, and, and ultimately the goal there is to build as much capacity as you can to hopefully reduce the risk of recurrence, reduce reduce kind of comorbidities and all that stuff down the line and kind of maintain wellness after treatment. Um, I think uh, Mark Ripito would put it really, really bluntly and say um, stronger people are harder to kill. Um, <laughs> and 
uh, I, I, I think that's something that, like, you know, anybody in, in the field that we kind of work, work in ourselves would say, it, like, the, the end game is to, is potentially to work in almost a, a prehab kind of manner and get people, let's say, the general pop as healthy as population should, you know, God forbid something like this happen to them down the line. And then if somebody, if it does happen, then to use it kind of an, as an adjunct therapy to, to kind of improve their quality of life. But you, you mentioned a few, um, let's say, a few of the negative effects of suffering from cancer or from cancer therapy that kind of warrants, you know, the, the kind of interventions that you're looking at. And I was wondering if you could go into a little bit more detail about what, what exactly happens um, or what can happen from kind of a side effect perspective in cancer or as a result of cancer therapy? And, and why is that happening? Um, yeah, that's yeah perfect. I'll, I'll give you the, the easiest example is individuals with prostate cancer. Testosterone is known to be a key driver of tumor growth in cancer, in prostate cancer. So the sole goal of treatment usually is to either stop the production of or stop the ability to use testosterone in the body. And typically that's done through hormonal therapy. And it turns out to be a really effective therapy at treating the prostate cancer. What happens is if you take testosterone out of people's bodies, especially men, all these changes that are associated with castrate conditions um, start to happen. So if you don't have testosterone, you're not regulating muscle mass at the same level. So you start to lose muscle mass. You start to accumulate fat mass. Testosterone plays a role in the regulation of bone health. So you actually start to develop or, or progress towards osteoporosis, this kind of porous condition of the bone where, where they're more weak and subject to fractures. And then associated with all that stuff is you're losing mass, you're losing function, you're losing strength, you're losing the ability to walk around your house day to day. We have a selective reduction in type 2 muscle fibers. So we've got the type 1, the nice, slow, easy-going muscle fibers, and we've got the type 2, fast, powerful muscle fibers that we use to jump and sprint and all that type of stuff. Those fibers are so important, not just for athletic performance, but for if your ma is carrying the washing around the house and the phone rings or the cat runs under her legs and she goes to step out and stop herself, that is reliant on type 2 muscle fibers to move quickly, to absorb the force of our body and push herself back into an upright position to reduce the risk of falls and fractures. So all the the physiological consequences of treatment kind of are signing the alarm bells of like, you're losing muscle mass, you're losing bone health, you're reducing physical strength and physical function. It's kind of inherently going, you know, weight training or strength training is the way to go here to try and preserve some of this. But we're also starting to see that we can kind of consistently or reliably change muscle strength. If you're, 65-year-old former accountant, you know, Joe Schmo or, or Jane Doe hasn't really done any training before and you get a, a diagnosis of cancer and you go through a training program, the changes in strength are fairly consistent. You're going to see some degree of improvements in muscular strength, upper and lower body with a comprehensive training program. Muscle mass is a lot harder to change and that's a consequence of things like hormonal therapy influencing um, the ability to actually change muscle mass to where we're starting to think of, well, maybe weight training or resistance training alone isn't the best way to do this. Maybe we need to chuck in some supplementation. Maybe we need to start to look at 
protein supplementation or creatine and all these things that we know to have an effect in athletic populations. Let's bring it into these clinical populations because that's where it's going to be most valuable. If there is some, some sort of effect, the, the magnitude of change could likely be um, a lot more valuable than to say, you know, an athlete or you or I. So you, you mentioned something really, really um, interesting there. It's, it's something that I don't think uh, I, I've touched on in, in the podcast before. But you mentioned that fairly consistently it's, it's let's say, relatively easy to increase strength with these interventions, uh, with a resistance exercise intervention. Um, but muscle is is the, the tough one. What's the difference? And I, I think this, this would be interesting to kind of just like talk about very, very basically the difference between, let's say, the changes that happen in somebody um, due to resistance exercise that lead to them getting stronger um, and the changes that happen that lead to them, you know, getting bigger, like, you know, muscle uh, hypertrophy. The changes, you look at a lot of the work that's been done in exercise oncology, the majority have been untrained older adults. And if you give someone who is untrained any sort of training program. It doesn't even have to be anything that's, you know, intensely programmed in terms of progressive overload and all that stuff. Most people respond to some sort of training stimulus. And that those adaptations are more often not neural in the beginning of a training program. So you've got the reduction of Golgi tendon organ influence where the, we have this protective mechanism where if you're not trained and I were to ask you to try and lift up a car, your body will protect yourself because it's protecting your tendons, your ligaments, your muscles from trying to lift a load that you can't handle. So the body's really smart at kind of selectively letting you gradually overload it to where it's used to more loads as opposed to just throwing you under a 100 kg barbell and going squat and get back up. So those neural changes are, are fairly consistent in, in untrained individuals. But trying to change mass is a lot harder and the pathways to change mass can be impacted by cancer treatment. So inflammation from treatment can influence mTOR pathway, can influence the way muscle protein is, is synthesized and broken down. And a lot of that times that can actually get out of control where muscle protein breakdown occurs at a quicker rate than muscle protein synthesis. And you actually start to see muscle wasting as well. So the regulation of muscle mass is fairly complex and You've got the, the challenge of age, the challenge of training status, the challenge of individual fitness and uh, injuries that are going to impact your tolerability to exercise. And then you've got things like chemotherapy, which you've been receiving for once a month for six months, and is causing high-grade inflammation and strategically influencing these pathways. It kind of makes sense that you're not going to be putting on a rake of, of muscle mass. But then there's also a, a really interesting side part to this of the programming. In clinical populations, and in cancer in particular, a lot of the earlier work was done more from a safety perspective of like, is it safe? Can they actually handle it? You know, what's the adverse effects? And because of that, there were more gentle programs. I call it the YMCA programs, where it could kind of rattle off its Leg press, leg extension, leg curl, shoulder press, seated row, machine press. And people are kind of left to their own devices for 12, 16 weeks. And there's no kind of attention paid to progression and overload with a goal to change muscle mass. So everyone's kind of just messing around the gym, doing their thing, whatever they enjoy. And then after 12 weeks, 
nothing happens, you're kind of looking around going, how much is it a factor of treatment versus the programming? And I've kind of started to move my research focus towards trying to influence programming and try and help us as, as a field better design, you know, tailored resistance training programs. So, like, you're in a different situation in that you're working in... Actually, yeah, so obviously you've moved to a new, um, a new university now. With your research, um, and I know, you know, you're going to have to develop it as you go along, will you be working out of, like, specialized um, facilities just for your research subjects, or will you be working with already established kind of, um, let's say, hospital uh, rehabilitation uh, centers or something like that? Both. Both. So we, we have our own dedicated sports science lab where we can, you know, we're lucky to have access to some of the best testing equipment you can get in terms of body comp, strength and function, all that stuff. But in, in cancer and a lot of clinical populations, you're affiliated with hospitals because you're doing a lot of your recruitment out of hospitals. And there's a lot of kind of relationship building and rapport building that has to happen. You've got to integrate yourself into the system to where we see it as a synergy between us and them as opposed to I'm doing it here versus there. And training in a hospital clinic where you have access to one or two pieces of equipment and some resistance bands is going to be a lot different than coming to air sports science lab where people are deadlifting and squatting and all this other stuff that the stimulus is going to be different as well, you know? So that brings about some really interesting questions about the real world implications of this of if you come to my lab and I hammer you for 12 weeks and put you through a really rigorous resistance training program, you see these improvements in 12 weeks. That's cool. But if you're not training in six months or if you're not going away and doing anything on your own, how relevant are those changes? Because even if you start to put on um, D-train on top of that, it doesn't matter how strong you got in 12 weeks. If you're not that, that strong in six months, it's kind of irrelevant. Yeah, and I, 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 I want to get into the, um, let's say, the, the aspects of behavior change because I know that you, you've used those in some of the, of the research that you've carried out. Um, but one thing I wanted to, to kind of mention just while we were talking about, you know, hospitals and different facilities, and you, you've already kind of touched on it, is there seems to be a bit of a reluctance um, in a lot of, let's say, hospital-based, let's say, rehabilitation. Because like, I work in cardiac rehab, so, you know, we've got an established cardiac rehab system. Um, and it's very, very much aerobic exercise-based um, because, you know, they've got plenty of research in aerobics for cardiac rehab. But when you start talking about resistance exercise, people immediately go, ooh, let's hold up a second there now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know if these people can take this, you know, like they're, like, as if they're made out of tissue paper or something like that. Um, and I'm completely aware that there's definitely, you know, consideration has to be made for every individual's particular um, abilities. But do you, or do you observe or do you see that there, there seems to be that little bit of let's say, almost excessive caution when it comes to prescribing uh, resistance exercise or even the kind of resistance exercise you're talking about to, to, to patients with cancer? Yeah, and I used to lose the plot. Like, I used to get really, really frustrated and angry with it and being like, how did you not see that this is valuable? And why are they being so um, invasive in terms of our practice and stuff like that? And you have to step back and go, right, put yourself in an MD or, or a medical you know, staff members' position, they've been trained a completely different way than we have. And they don't get any education on 
the benefits or what happens when you participate in resistance training or aerobic training. And on top of that, they're seeing all these, these, especially in the cancer world, all these changes and all these side effects of, of chemo and radiations to where if you're up all night and you're, you're getting sick and you can't eat and you're, you've low energy and in, if you think about sarcopenia, you've got low function, you've got a reduced gait, gait speed and you're doing that kind of shuffle and I come in and go, everyone needs to do cleans. <laughs> you know, they're going to go, you're a psychopath. Like, why would we you know, do that? The, the biggest difference for me in my career so far has been getting out of my own way and learning to speak the language of the medical team and compromise. So I can say as much as I want and beat the dead horse of everyone has to train heavy because I've had the fortune of training people with terminal cancer or advanced cancer with extensive bone metastases, and they are a lot more resilient than we give them credit for. And a lot of the times, we're only, the only source of kind of positivity in their life where it's not just the physiological changes, it's the, the social support and the benefit of being in a, a, a supportive group like that. But that has to be balanced with the perception of who I am coming into a medical team and strutting down the hallway and go, everyone has to train no matter what, and I can't believe you're not recommending it. It takes time to build the relationships, and that's on an institutional, in, institutional level and on an individual level. You know, you could line up eight doctors in an oncology ward. Four may never have exercised before and are never going to buy it. Two might kind of be on the fence, and two or three might be triathletes or, or resistance training individuals themselves, so they buy into it. So it, the relationship that you build to try and get the message across the resilience it takes to kind of keep going and keep knocking on the door, it's, it's a lot. We can't expect, we used to make the call of like, everyone should be prescribing exercise and all that stuff. And like, hang on a minute. Like if you're, the, if you're a busy doctor in oncology ward, you're worried about treating disease. The last thing you're going to do is, sorry, Mary, you've got three months to live, but have you tried squatting? You know what I mean? Like we have to understand the role that we play in their life is not, the centerfold we're an important adjunct but we can't conflate our importance and have that perception come across to the medical team and if we show that compromise and flexibility and, and humility i found that that's people are more receptive to collaborating and letting you kind of access their their patients that way no absolutely it, it is all a matter of kind of building a rapport with um with the teams that you're working with because at the end of the day um, like, you know, if you're working with a rehab team, they're the ones who are going to be working with the people. And, you know, th the thing is, they've got an incredibly valuable input to, to give, give you as well from their experience. Um, one, like one thing, this kind of, uh, just a comment and a question. Um, so when we proposed our research on um, resistance exercise for cardiac, uh, for cardiac rehab, people, the, 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 um, the therapist got back to us and said, well, you know, we're working with aerobic exercise here and, you know, it, we know it has benefits. So here's you doing this, um, this intervention and you're just using resistance exercise. And are you, are you going to be telling people that that's all they should be doing? And you kind of have to say, no, 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 listen, we just, we're doing this because we want to see if it works. Um, and I'm sure people will come to you and there's always seems to be this either or mentality when it comes to resistance exercise and aerobic exercise and people love to get uh, a very very simple answer which is better 
resistance exercise or aerobic exercise because nobody nobody likes to to think that two things might be good at the same time um but i'm just out of curiosity i know your your specific field of research is resistance exercise but what's the what's let's say the the body of evidence for aerobic exercise in the treatment of in exercise oncology it's probably a little stronger to be honest largely because a lot of the people who are doing their earlier work were people who are more interested in cardiovascular um, training. And my, my specific nuanced research interest is so different to my recommendations into the real world of this is what you should do. So I'm very specifically interested in can I, with weight training and supplementation, improve low muscle mass and function? That's different than if your aunt or uncle is going through cancer treatment, we have to look at the big picture and look at what are they going to experience on an individual level, depending on the type of chemotherapy they have, they may have a degree of cardiotoxicity where the structure and the function of the heart is impaired. They may have impaired lung function. They may have peripheral neuropathy that results in balance impairments. And so the intervention is targeting the impairments as opposed to everyone has to weight train. And when people ask, like, what's the difference between exercise oncology and regular training, all the principles are the same. The only thing that you need to understand that's different is understand the treatment complications and the, the pathophysiology of the disease. Because the, the type of tumor you have, the size of tumor will dictate the type of treatment you have. And the type, dose, combination, sequence of treatment will all result in all these different physiological and psychosocial changes that then inform your exercise prescription. And if you have someone who is a breast cancer 10 years post-treatment, um, you know, and they've been active kind of here or there, they may have some upper body mo- uh, uh, reductions in mobility because they've had some sort of surgery and a surgeon told them to not lift a gallon of milk over the head for, for whatever. That's different than someone who's undergoing active therapy for head and neck cancer and they're receiving chemo and radiation at the same time. And very few people in the world are going to be working in those settings. So my general recommendations to practitioners is stick to your foundational principles of training, manage rest and recovery. And then this is where the collaboration with the oncologists happen of try to understand what's going on with the treatments. If they're receiving active treatment, understand that there's days that they're not going to get out of bed through nausea and fatigue and tiredness and depression a lot of the times. And there's other days where they may feel grand and it's trying to manage all of that together and manage the person as a whole, as opposed to saying everyone needs to squat versus going a bike and, and cycle. Yeah. Um, there's a massive role of individual individuality when it comes to, to prescribing just what people can do or what the individual can do. Um, I think, you know, obviously your research is looking at the benefits of, of exercise. But one, one thing that anybody in the world of, let's say nutrition or, or exercise for health will know that, you know, it's, it's easy to tell somebody what to do. Um, the real battle is getting them to do it and getting them to do it regularly. And in your experience and kind of with the, with the research you've carried out, how difficult is that to do? And what kind of strategies have you used in the past for making or, or kind of encouraging people to, to keep up with these interventions or, or do them regularly? It's the single hardest part and it's the most um, overlooked part. I think there's actually a transition now where a lot of kind of hardcore, say, physiologists or exercise physiologists are starting to recognize 
the challenges because it's exactly what I said. Like if you improve in 12 weeks, it's irrelevant if your fitness has declined to where you were, you know, 12 months ago. If, if we don't see meaningful change that actually lasts, if I improve your squat by 40 pounds in 12 weeks and nothing happens as a result, it doesn't matter. So the strategies to, to try and maintain the adoption of new behaviors is infinitely difficult. And it doesn't even need to be exercise context. Picture trying to get your granddad or your, or your dad or your ma to try and stop smoking. And that will show you enough how difficult it is. We as people in the fitness industry are exercisers. We identify as people who like to stay fit. So we can't comprehend why it's so difficult for someone to actually take up this new habit. When you've been someone who's never partaken in sports, who is 55, 60 years of age, who is overweight, has a bum knee and half a shoulder, for us to say, why aren't you training three days a week and then getting your steps in every other day? You're, why would you? It, it's an arrogance to assume that they are going to maintain this. Not to mention for me on an individual level, I know, like, I'm like a cardboard box trying to move, like, in terms of my flexibility. I know yoga is good for me, but I, I haven't gotten past two consistent sessions in my life. So if I were to do a yoga intervention, I might improve my flexibility, but I'm going to go straight back to weight training. And all of that is to say that our, our strategies to target behavior change is centered around, um, it's theory driven and cer certain theories that we know to influence behavior, but it's centered around the individual and then being mindfulness, mindful of barriers to their own exercise habits and routines to try and practice problem solving of like, I don't live close to a gym. What can I do in, in absence of that? Or I'm busy. How can I get in the usual stuff that we know to, to be effective? But then it also comes down to preferences, the value they put on the outcomes. So if I say, listen, Richie, you're going to go through this program and you're going to improve your upper body strength by 30 pounds. Depending on how much you value that increase, you may or may not go, tell me to take, <laughs> take a jump in a lake. But if I tell you, Richie, listen, you're getting up in age. I want you to be able to play with your kids. And I want you to be able to bend over and pick them up and throw them around in the garden as you're, you're getting older. If I can frame the outcomes of the intervention in a way that's meaningful to you, it's more likely to be effective at translating into behavior change. And then the other thing comes into effect in the minimal effective dose. So we're obsessive people. We can't get enough of exercise. What's the most I can get away with? What's the, what it, how, how much can I improve? That is a psychotic behavior to participate in. We are in the, the minority of people in the world that have that perspective. The majority of people are, what's the least I can get away with? So if I look at that on my parents' or grandparents' level, what's the least amount of training that they can do that they're going to maintain some sort of benefit. So does it have to be three days a week? Or can we get away with one or two days a week? And does it have to be at the gym? Or can we find a kind of a hybrid approach to where they maintain physical function, they maintain their mass, and ultimately those contribute to quality of life? Because that's, that's the biggest thing that we're concerned about, is the quality of life that's influenced by improvements in health, health-related quality of life. So there's limitations to what we do in exercise oncology. If you've got a terminal diagnosis and you've got two or three months to live and you want to go live by a lake and eat pizza, 
I'm not going to tell you to stay around my center because you've got to come to my specialized clinic and do a few squats. I'm going to say, do you know what? Head off to the lake and enjoy your life. It's not our job to coerce people or make people feel guilty for not doing stuff. All we do is present what we know, offer support. And look, if you're interested, here's some things that you can kind of keep yourself taken along with it as well. Absolutely. And I, I think if there's anybody who, who's listening, who's a, a coach or who works in some sort of a coaching or advice giving capacity, they'll, they'll be very, very aware of what you've just said there. There is no amount of telling somebody what they need to do that is going to get them to do it if they don't want to. Um, but like finding, finding some of those, um, like let's say intrinsic motivator, something that's going to help people to find a reason for what they want to do is, you know, that, that is one of the keys of, of any type of behavior change. Um, if we talk a little bit specifically, um, or more specifically about your, your research, what kind of interventions have you done so far? As in what kind of structure, what kind of way have you structured interventions in the past in, in, um, let's say oncology, exercise oncology, and what kind of results have you seen, um, uh, up to now? So it depends on what we are interested, what we are interested in changing really kind of determined what we are looking to do in terms of the study design. So the most recent one led by my uh, mentor, uh, Ohio State, Brian Foe, he was interested in changing fat mass and weight management in individual with prostate cancer going through ADT. So that was the whole comprehensive program we just talked about where it wasn't just training, it was centered around um, behavior change and lifestyle change. So the exercise was a, an important component and it was kind of fairly general of a few exercises targeting upper and lower body um, strength, mostly machine-based exercises. But he comes from a, a background where he's very focused on self-efficacy. So the intensity and the load of the program was centered around what's challenging enough to give you a stimulus, but not too challenging that you lose your confidence and your ability to do it. And all of that was housed in this um, peer-led group support system where it's one thing for you and I to be instructors of a group program and go, do you know what, John, prostate cancer is hard, man, but you know, you got to keep going with your fitness versus having someone who's 55 and go, do you know what? I didn't know I was going to have sexual dysfunction because of my treatment for my prostate cancer. I didn't know I was going to have incontinence and have to wear diapers to the gym and experience the embarrassment of wet myself in front of instructors. And if you can put people who are experiencing the same thing in the same room and let them share their experiences and their challenges and their ability to navigate those challenges, that's a lot more powerful than me going, John, have you tried change your diaper? <laughs> you know? So given that peer led support, I think is really powerful. And, and those resulted in, Important changes in fat mass. I think we had a, I think two or three pound decrease in fat mass in eight weeks, and then really meaningful changes in self-efficacy and our confidence to kind of continue the exercise program. I've now switched gears, or, or kind of my research has translated into uh, again the regulation of muscle mass and, and body composition. So the most recent one, or the one that I'm currently leading, is looking at the combination of resistance training and creatine on muscle mass and function in men with prostate cancer on ADT. And that, that um, structure is, a is kind of different, but it's centered around, if you look at a lot of exercise interventions, we struggle as researchers to find 
what's standardized to, to be a protocol that we did this protocol to change this outcome versus the individual heterogeneity of people in our trials. So a lot of the times, if you take six people, they're going to have six different fitness levels, backgrounds, all that stuff. They're going to have six different programs. So we've moved away from specific exercises and more towards movements. So we want to take a hip hinge, a squat pattern, maybe some sort of step up motion. Then you've got horizontal push, horizontal pull, vertical push, vertical pull, pull in the core exercise. Now, if that's a seat, sit to stand for you and a squat to me, I'm okay with that. I'm trying to find a stimulus that's going to impact you and what's tolerable to your function and your capacity. And then we look to combine that with creatine to see what we can do in terms of, of mass because creatine is, is probably the most uh, studied supplement that's had a lot of effect in a lot of other clinical populations and other adults. So we're the first to kind of look at it in a, in a context of cancer and see what we can do. And then here at South Carolina, we're in the process of running a feasibility trial where we're, it's kind of a kitchen sink approach. The same training protocol of hip hinge, push pull, that type of stuff. Now, instead of just creatine, we're not as concerned on an individual level of what, what is it protein, is it creatine, is it whatever. Let's throw everything at you and see, specifically in people with low muscle mass, because a lot of the times in the majority of research, we don't actually target the impairment. We'll say low muscle mass is important to, to, to target, but we take anyone in regardless of levels of muscle mass. And there ends up being a ceiling effect whereby if you have appropriate muscle mass, you may not even need to change it that much. And more often than not, it's the people with low levels that actually experience the, the greatest benefit. So we're specifically recruiting people who are diagnosed with sarcopenia through a three-step process of screening and, and diagnosis. And they're the ones we're targeting with resistance training, protein supplementation, high leucine content, creatine and fish oils, throwing everything at them and seeing if it works, if it's tolerable, what sort of outcomes we can um, get from it. And then if that's successful, we'll use those results to inform a much larger kind of multi-site trial and, and roll that out. But it could also turn out that it's way too much. You know, it, it could be too much for them to think about and worry about. They may be non-compliant to the supplement intervention. There's a whole host of factors that it's important to run the feasibility first before we try and change all these things. Absolutely. Um, I, I think... There, there could, you know, we could do with more pragmatic approaches like that um, in nutrition and fitness because we, we, I think it's very, very easy for certain research groups to get into, get it into their head that they have one outcome at the end. It's like either I want to see if X supplement works in this population or I want to see if I can change whatever, uh, you know, be it muscle mass or fat mass or whatever. But, you know, if you have an approach where we're trying all of these different things, we just want to see if we can, and I, I suppose at the end of the day, improving quality of life or some other long-term outcome, like, you know, survival rates, th those should be the real, you know, um, end goals that we're looking at um, and having a more pragmatic approach like that, even if they're, they're a little bit more complex in what they, they entail, can be really useful. You, you mentioned you're, you're going to be taking on people with sarcopenia, and I just wondered what um, type of, uh, what, what definition of sarcopenia are you going to be using? So we're using the latest um, European working group, all those at that acronym, that's about 47 letters. <laughs> I know, the, the one that just rolls off your tongue, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the latest consensus from, from the, the largest working group on sarcopenia. So we're using the SARCF, 
um, questionnaire is a, a pre-screening tool. So this questionnaire basically talks about, does, are you having trouble moving about your day-to-day life? And if that indicates to us that you might be, um, you know, at risk for sargopenia or kind of indicates potential of sargopenia, we'll then use an indices of muscle strength. So we're going to use the five times sit to sand. And the threshold they recommend is if it takes longer than 15 seconds, sargopenia is probable. And then we'll put you in uh, on a DEXA, on a dual X-ray absorption, another thing that rolls off your tongue, <laughs> where we'll get a fairly uh, accurate assessment of your muscle mass. And then the threshold, if you're below a certain threshold for muscle mass, if those three things are checked, it's you, you've kind of got sarcopenia and you're in, in the trial. The reason we're doing feasibility is kind of in line with that as well, because we do have these you know, rates of sarcopenia amongst a, a lot of different kind of older adult groups or clinical populations. But that's a lot different of doing a cross-sectional study looking at rates of sarcopenia compared to is it feasible and in a, in a time-sensitive manner to recruit X people with sarcopenia into our trial. So we may find our screening is really rigorous and people actually aren't in that category of sarcopenia and we don't end up recruiting enough people. Or we might find that a lot of people are and we get a bunch of people in. So I think it's going to be really interesting for that perspective. We're going to quantify recruitment based on participants per month. So if we, you know, anyone who, who's anyone who's indicated by SARC-F comes in, we screen them. If we can get them into the trial, great. If we don't, that's really important information of like the rates aren't as high or, or the recruitment isn't, you know, we need to, to identify different ways to recruit. So I think it's going to be a really interesting trial to, to kind of answer or, or give us a lot more to think about um, after it. Um, a lot of people don't kind of, I'm sure they, you know, the word sarcopenia is, is more common these days. So people have a bit of an idea of what it is, but I, I, I'm fairly sure a lot of people don't realize just the amount that goes into um, defining somebody or diagnosing somebody officially with, with sarcopenia. And you just kind of mentioned it, a three-step process. You know, you, you go through the, the questionnaire uh, to see if they're suffering from the symptoms. You do a, a, a function test or it could be a strength test. Um, and then you're doing um, a body comp analysis using a DEXA, which, you know, like the first two, relatively easy to do. The DEXA, you know, it takes takes time. It's an expensive piece of equipment. You need to book people in. So it... Def, you know, defining people as having sarcopenia is not the easiest thing to do straight away. Do you are like are you aware of, or is it something you're looking into? Any kind of like uh, easy proxies for for sarcopenia that you think might be potentially more useful for kind of speeding things up with with diagnosis in the future? Um, I'm not looking at it myself, but my perspective is this, and I use this with um. Uh, using a DEXA to identify people who are osteoporotic a lot of times, where if you're on certain chemotherapy agents or certain hormonal therapy, you reduce your bone mineral density. And we can approach that two ways. We can say, Richie, I want you to go down to the clinic down the road, spend 150 quid on a DEXA, and it's going to come back and tell me what I probably already think that you've got going on, and it's not going to change my prescription too much. So I've, again, the, the practice side of what I would do was re, it's really kind of use the SARC-F and use some sort of assessment of physical function. Whether or not the, ma- the muscle mass is low or not is, you know, it's important for us in some ways, but also it's not really in terms of what you're going to do because your strategies are still going to try and improve ultimately the function. 
the mass is important in some ways for metabolic health, but really we're concerned about the function. Can you move about your house day to day? So if you're indicated by a simple questionnaire, are you having trouble picking up the laundry? Are you having trouble getting up and down the stairs or getting in and out of the car? Okay, let's try a strength training intervention. We don't need to go through the eight steps down the road to, to, uh, to make sure we know that you're sarcopenic, you know? Um, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really, really good point, that, that entire statement that you just made there. Because, like, myself, when I got into, into this particular field, I was all about, yeah, muscle mass. It's all about, you know, get people a little bit of size, get them, you know, another kilo of muscle after three months, they'll be, they'll be fantastic. And then the more you look into the research, you start thinking, well, look, if we can get them stronger, if we can make them make it easier for them to get out of bed in the morning or to get out of a chair or to climb up the stairs or just to do the basic things that you know people consider to be living, you know, to walk better or to stop themselves from falling over if they trip, that's a major win um, for, for a lot of people. And I, and I, I think that's... Um, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's great when we can see uh, numbers increasing with lean mass or, you know, appendicular mass or something like that. But when we can see that somebody is just living better and is happier because of it, I think that that's a, a major win. Um, and uh, I know if, you, if you've observed something sim- similar in your own research. Yeah, it, it, it has consistently come back to the so what of it, where when we're getting into this field, we read about the importance of muscle mass. And it is important. But then you start to think through, even from your own perspective, of how difficult it is to actually put on meaningful amounts of muscle mass and keep it on to, compared to changes in muscular strength and physical function. If you put them side by side, you can actually have changes in strength and function without you know, meaningful changes in mass. And so who cares if you spread out a kilogram around your body, if you increase or don't increase that mass, but you're actually able to bend down and pick up things or, or walk around with your family and all that stuff. So I've actually, the more I've gotten involved into muscle mass, the less of not cared about it, but the less it's been prioritized. And it only matters if it's associated with all these other benefits that we see with, with, with training. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it, you have to kind of think of the the real end goal, and it's it's very very easy, I think, in research to kind of to focus on a specific marker and say, okay, that's my end goal. But at the end of the day, it's it's health or or wellness in whatever way you want to kind of define it yourself. Um, Kieran, we we've speak, been speaking a lot about exercise in general, um, and we touched very very briefly on kind of on protein and supplementation. But um, what are your thoughts, or what's the kind of the the, the consensus regarding um, different nutritional strategies when it comes to, to cancer care at the moment? Jeez, man, you asked me that with eight minutes left. That's, <laughs> that's, that is a nightmare of a question. It's a, it's a very, very messy area. And when you talk about what we've been talking about in terms of speaking the language of the medical team and all that stuff, we as evidence-informed practitioners or as research scientists or whatever, we're paying attention to the evidence in terms of supplementation and nutrition. There are some cowboys out there that are baiting people who are in vulnerable states with cancer to say, do you know what? You don't need to do chemotherapy because keto starves the tumor cells. All these things that we have to be so careful about 
not overstating the evidence, about understanding what the role of nutrition is. Because I'm a meathead. I like my supplements, but I'm not a registered dietitian. I'm not trained in metabolism, how that's influenced by micronutrients. So I'm never going to sit down with someone with cancer and say, this is how you need to eat. And it can get to the extreme where if you've had head and neck cancer and have part of your throat removed and you're getting radiation to, to the throat and you can't consume 500 calories a day, me saying to chuck a load of protein into you, it, it's not going to do a lot. It requires a lot more intensive care. So I'm very cautious of, of knowing my, my scope as a scientist and a practitioner and also kind of being a little bit more conservative in my nutritional approach in that me saying you can do X, Y, and Z for someone who's finished treatment and they're kind of in that wellness stage versus someone who's actively receiving chemo and, and radiation and how that's going to be received by the individual and their medical team. It's a messy area. Um, and funny enough, if you'd see, like, it's one of the more enjoyable discussions on Twitter to see a lot where patient advocates are, advocates are getting pretty strong in their pushback of people going, you got cancer, try out fenugreek. You're going like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? So I think it's um, it's on us to act with integrity and kind of be very balanced in our approach of, of what can... Because I, I say creatine is great, but no one's actually demonstrated in cancer. So if at the end of this trial we see null effects, I have to represent that because it's an important finding. So I can sink to the rooftops about how everyone should take creatine, but if we're the only trial that's been out there and we're the first to show that there is no real effects, I'll represent that accurately, you know? Absolutely. Um, like you said, <laughs> you said it really, really well. There's a lot of cowboys out there. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and like, you know, it's a good point. When, when you're talking about something like cancer, or I find any, any serious condition that people want to, to heal, you know, they, they will, you know, grasp at, anything um in an attempt to heal that and they will listen to anyone and like logic goes out the window unfortunately um but i think despite the uh, the short amount of time i gave you to answer that you did a great job uh, <laughs> uh this conversation could go on for a very very long time and we could go down a lot of different alleyways um but it, it we may have to, to leave it for a, another occasion but i just wanted to say here on thank you so much for you know for what you're doing uh, the, the research that you're doing because, uh, you know, and I, I'm very, very biased because I think, you know, I think exercise is great. I think using it as kind of an adjunct to other therapies is a really, really important approach. But I think what you're doing is incredibly important. And I just want to say thanks for coming on and, and speaking with us um, uh, about what you're doing. And for anybody who, who wants to, to follow you a little bit more and learn a little bit more about you, what are the best ways to go about and do that? Um, you can shoot me a message. Um, I'm most active on Twitter. So all of my handles on social media are at Kieran Fairman. So I'll leave you to spell that wherever, <laughs> however you want to. Um, or you can email me at kieranfairman at gmail.com. Or if you Google Kieran Fairman Cancer, my, my uh, faculty profile at South Carolina will come up. There's contact information there. I also have a podcast where I interview patients and researchers on the field of exercise oncology and go more into depth. And that's called uh, REACH. So if you Google REACH and cancer, um, you'll find that as well. So a lot of different ways. Happy to chat about people who are interested, patients or people who are interested in getting into the area. And guys, you won't have to Google any of that because I will include all of those details. <laughs> going on. 
Um, so it'll make it nice and easy for you. Um, Kieran, I just want to say thank you very, very much for the for the chat, um, for all that information, and um, I'm very, very much looking forward to uh, chatting with you again sometime soon. Appreciate it, Richie. Glad to hang out. Take care of yourself. Good night. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.